0: Slow, steady, and smart makes it to the moon this week on Planetary Radio. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan. The European Space Agency is celebrating. After more than a year of gentle spaceflight pushed along by a state-of-the-art ion engine, Smart One has arrived in lunar orbit. We'll talk with Bernard Foing, the ESA's chief scientist and project scientist for this mission. Emily Lakdawala will hold up a mirror to our own galaxy, the Milky Way. And Bruce Betts gives you a chance to serve NASA in this week's trivia contest that, well, isn't a trivia contest. All that begins right after this review of the top space headlines. The case for methane on Mars grows stronger as two teams present more evidence. Not all the results agree with one group finding a higher incidence of natural gas, where there is also water vapor. Both teams acknowledge that so-called methanogenic bacteria under the surface could be the source, but no one is anywhere near a conclusive statement about life on the red planet. All the details are at planetary.org on the web. They are the biggest explosions in the universe, making a supernova look like no more than a wet firecracker. Scientists now hope to learn much more about gamma-ray bursts with the successful launch of SWIFT from Cape Canaveral. The 20-foot spacecraft will conduct its search from Earth orbit for at least two years and may examine well over 100 of these large, not to say big, bangs. And Time magazine has named Spaceship One as the year's greatest invention, with special kudos for its safe and relatively cool Feathered reentry dreamed up by Bert Rutan late one night in his bed. Congratulations, Bert, again. I'll be back with Bernard Foing of the European Space Agency right after Emily takes her snapshot of the Milky Way. Say cheese, everyone.
1: Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, I've seen photos of the Milky Way that make me wonder... How have we been able to photograph our galaxy if we've never traveled outside it? The answer is that we are actually outside most of the Milky Way. The Milky Way galaxy is a flat disk of stars with gas and dust in the wide spaces between those stars. Also, there's a roughly spherical bulge of stars in the middle of the disk in the galaxy's center. Most of the Milky Way galaxy's stars lie within about 30,000 light years of the galaxy's center. Our own star is located about 25,000 light-years from the center, lying in the outskirts of the Milky Way, but still on that disk of stars. So when we cast our eyes along the plane of the Milky Way's disk, we see the other stars in our galaxy as a bright band across the sky. But we don't see the bulge at the center of the galaxy. Why not? Stay tuned to Planetary Radio to find out.
0: We last talked with Bernard Foing just moments after the launch of Smart One. That was in September of 2003. Now, well over a year later, the little spacecraft has reached the moon. Anyone who remembers that the Apollo astronauts got there in a couple of days might be asking, what took so long? The answer is just part of the success story, as I heard from Bernard in our recent conversation. Dr. Foing, welcome back to Planetary Radio and congratulations on having reached the Moon.
2: Yes, welcome from the Moon. We are so excited that uh, we are now on our first lunar orbit. Uh, we just arrived on Monday fifteen November for a four days uh, first orbit. We have tested the technology before, the, the ion uh, engine to bring us there and also some of the instruments on board. And uh, everything seems nominal. And uh, at the moment we are still busy driving around the Moon to get closer.
0: One of the statistics that I uh, find the most entertaining that uh, if your little spacecraft was an automobile, you would have gotten about two million kilometers per liter of gas or five million miles per gallon
2: <laughs> yeah that 's right uh, that 's a generation, uh, next generation of vehicle five million uh, fuel per gallon uh, that's uh, five million kilo, uh, miles per gallon sorry yes, in fact, we have spent sixty liters of fuel to cover the distance to the moon we didn 't go straight. To the moon. In fact, we started from uh, an orbit um, after the I- an Ion 5 rocket left us in an orbit around the Earth, in the so-called geostationary transfer orbit, which are the orbits which are used to send telecom satellites. there. Uh, from there, we used the ion engine alone to spiral out of the Earth and then bring uh, us to the moon.
0: And while this is uh, not. The first ion engine used in space, it, it is the first one well, certainly the first one that has gotten anybody to the moon, but uh, is of a particularly advanced design.
2: Yes, it's based on some uh, technology which is used on some um, satellite, um, geostationary satellite to reposition them. We use it for a very long uh, duration for 4,000 hours of uh, thrust uh, with this engine, so it was a, a record. But also it's the first time we leave the Earth use, using this engine. Even if there have been some mission like Deep Space One using ion propulsion, they used a chemical rocket to leave the Earth's uh, gravity, and then they made full use of the ion propulsion for interplanetary travel. In fact, even if we started from the Earth, we have covered a total distance already of 80 million kilometers, which is uh, thought to be uh, like interplanetary distance, except that most of it was covered around the Earth at the beginning.
0: So it's but- a good proof of concept that you, this technology could allow us to reach someplace like Mars.
2: Yes, we could uh, reach uh, Mars, and uh, with this uh, efficiency, we could bring more cargo, if you are a bit uh, patient. But uh, mm. also, we can uh, reach uh, inner solar system destination. We have a mission called uh, uh, BepiColombo, which is uh, to go to Mercury in 2012, and another one which um, is to go near the sun, called Solar Orbiter. And in fact, for the mission to Mercury, using citric propulsion we will even cut time we will be able to go in 3 years instead of 6 years so not only we get more payload ability because we save uh, uh, mass by uh, this more efficient fuel but also we could arrive faster at some of the far destinations
0: is it safe to say that uh, as much as collecting science was a goal of smart one at least as much was the goal of trying out these n- new technologies which will go way beyond this uh, ion engine
2: Yes, we were trying to um, test this ion propulsion, trying also to test new ways of doing business, uh, faster, low cost, um, and harder, and I hope uh, better at the end, uh, where we developed a spacecraft only in a three-year time scale, and uh, we tested it. But also we um, wanted to demonstrate new technologies, and uh, the Smart One spacecraft is uh, uh, packed with uh, some very miniaturized technologies. We have uh, sensors, uh, so we call them the eyes of Smart One. We have a, a visible eye, which is about the size of a human eye, actually. It's a, it's a camera which is very miniaturized, using electronic uh, components which are just packed in a cube of 2 centimeters. Wow. But we have also an infrared spectrometer. These are our infrared eyes on both Smart One. And this spectrometer is only 2 kilograms, 10 times lighter than the current generation of uh, spectrometers around other planets. And we have X-ray eyes. This is um, an experiment, only 5 kilograms, which is uh, measuring uh, the X-rays from the moon, but also has looked at the Earth and at cosmic s- sources during the cruise from the Earth to the moon.
0: And Smart SmartOne, so it has uh, at least three eyes. I've heard it has a couple of
2: noses as well. Yeah, in fact, uh, yeah, we have uh, three noses. Two are quite long. Uh, like Pinocchio uh, noses, uh, <laughs> about 60 centimeter long. They are on top of a boom so that you can smell the particles which are surrounding the, the spacecraft, those particles which are created by the ion engine itself, but also when we switch off the engine, we can uh, uh, smell or measure the particle in the natural uh, electric environment from the Earth to the Moon. And we have also uh, a nose uh, uh, really on the spacecraft uh, itself. We can also listen uh, we have uh, two types of antennas. They look like uh, very special ears on our baby, actually. And they are measuring uh, microwave and uh, to communicate uh, with uh, Earth. Microwave at very high frequency. This allows to have um, communication in deep space with very high bandwidth. It's a uh, precursor technology for future interplanetary communications or even uh, communication between Earth and low Earth um, orbit application satellite with very high bandwidth. Uh,
0: the name of the spacecraft, SMART-1, does that denote or, or, or suggest that it is a smarter, a more intelligent spacecraft many, than many have, that have gone before?
2: Yes, yeah, SMART is in fact an acronym, and actually it was invented by uh, Professor Roger Bonnet. He was the Director of Science at ISA, and the acronym stands for Small Missions for Advanced Research in Technology. It's um, a series of uh, missions that uh, uh, we use to demonstrate uh, technology in space to prepare for future ambitious uh, strategic missions. For instance, uh, these missions that are going to visit Mercury, BP Colombo, or Solar Orbiter. or We have even um, astronomical observatories, which uh, we would want to place at the Lagrangian point um, of the Earth moon. The L5 uh, uh, and the other L2 Lagrange points. Point. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a point which is uh, beyond the Earth compared to the sun, but uh, which is uh, very stable and uh, where we, we could uh, have a huge observatory in the future. But we are also, cons- also considering using this end propulsion to put this uh, big infrastructure there. And as well, we are looking at possibilities for the future, having a mission to Mars or even a big cargo to the moon
0: which suggests that Europe has uh, big plans or or big hopes for space exploration. I hope we can get to that when we come back for the second half of our conversation. But first, when we return, let's talk about uh, the science that is now going to be done now that SMART-1 has reached the moon. Our guest on Planetary Radio is Bernard Foing. He is the chief scientist for the European Space Agency, but also the project scientist for SMART-1, which has just arrived in lunar orbit. We'll be right back after this. This week on Planetary Radio, we are spending some time with Bernard Foing, who is uh, celebrating, along with the rest of his team at the European Space Agency, the arrival in lunar orbit of SMART-1, Europe's mission to the moon, that uh, has been, so far, such an incredibly successful testbed for a lot of technologies, including its ion engine. But, uh, Dr. Foing, you are a scientist. You must be happy now to be arriving at the moon, and uh, you can start doing some lunar science.
2: Yes, indeed, uh, there are many fundamental questions which are uh, there are mysteries about the Moon, and we try using these new uh, technologies, uh, these uh, eyes in the visible, infrared, and X-ray, and other instruments to study the Moon. One question is uh, where does the Moon come from? What what are the origin? We believe now that uh, the Moon is a daughter of the Earth, that it has been uh, formed 4.5 billion years ago when a planetary embryo about half the size of Mars impacted the Earth and put some debris of the Earth and of this impactor together that later recondensed to form the Moon. Also, we try to uh, observe on the Moon the historical record of the giant bombardment that took place uh, after this time, the first 500 million years of uh, the solar system history. So that's about uh, a journey to our origins. Even more, we tried to study on the moon how a planet, a rocky planet, works, even a planet which is a bit smaller than the Earth, to understand better how our own Earth is working.
0: And you've been doing some science, even on the way to the moon. I, I saw an image, I think it was, of uh, the moon's uh, north pole?
2: Yes, okay, this was a historical um, achievement, because for the first time, as we were approaching a bit from the uh, north and, uh, direction, a European, uh, West European spacecraft Uh, could see um, the North Pole of the Moon, but even part of the far side, which uh, in this configuration was illuminated and was not visible from the Earth. So we have also um, uh, done some uh, studies uh, during a lunar eclipse on 28th of October. And for the first time, we could take a family portrait of the Earth and Moon together while the moon was being eclipsed, and uh, uh. I it was a quite emotional moment when you obtained that.
0: I'll have to look for that image on uh, the website for the uh, Smart One mission. A link to that site will be on the Planetary Society website at planetary.org, right where people can and maybe are listening to this radio program. I wonder uh, if Smart one is uh, going to investigate further this question of uh, water ice at the poles on the moon.
2: Yes, indeed. Uh, we, it's one of our um, objectives as well. So we have um, uh, designed the camera to be able to observe craters in the polar regions of the moon which are in permanent shadow from the sun. And in this crater, the temperature is so low, it, it's minus 200 degrees Celsius, so that um, uh, water could uh, stay trapped forever. And we believe that the water coming from a comet's impact on the moon or also water-rich asteroids, which is wandering around on the lunar surface until it's being trapped in these places and then would stay forever. And there have been some measurements earlier that there is some enhancement of hydrogen in the poles. What we want to do with Smart One is make some deep images in this area with a camera, but also we have an infrared spectrometer that could search for the fingerprint, spectral fingerprint of water ice. And then we would be able really to say this hydrogen that has been detected there is due to water, so hydrogen combined into H2O as in water.
0: Smart One currently in this this first orbit around the Moon. It, it's a pretty elongated orbit, but that's one that's going to uh, settle down. I know about how far from the Moon will Smart One orbit uh, once it's uh, fully in place?
2: At the moment, uh, our first lunar orbit, we are at a distance of five thousand kilometers at the closest and fifty thousand kilometers at the farthest. Wow. But uh, we are now continuing to uh, decelerate using our ion engine to spiral down closer to the moon. In uh, two months, we will uh, reach an orbit which will be 300 kilometers at the closest to uh, 3,000 kilometers. From this orbit, we will have the ability to make uh, images at high resolution, but we will be able also to have a, a view both of the South Pole, but also have some global views of the North Polar regions and uh, the rest of the planet.
0: So obviously there is much more to look forward to?
2: Yes, we are looking uh, for uh, generating uh, this measurement, also looking with uh, our infrared spectrometer and camera at uh, the minerals which are on the surface of the Moon, looking at the resources uh, for the future and even looking at high resolution at possible landing sites for the next uh, set of missions. At the moment, well, Europe is just alone around the moon, so we are looking Mm. for the next uh, ships from the lunar fleet to come. So there are some Japanese, Indian, uh, Chinese, and U.S. missions that are due to come before the decade. And so we try to make also observations that could help to prepare with our international partners this uh, next step of international lunar exploration we are also going to map in detail some places for instance from the the far side uh, where there is a giant impact basin 2500 kilometers wide where you could get some samples even from the interior of the moon which have been injected l- mm. during this impact. And there is one, the U.S. mission, which is planning to return some of those samples. So we try to make some maps to help in the preparation of this uh, moonrise, the uh, Southfall, and can sample uh, return mission
0: so very ambitious plans uh really globally and uh ambitious plans apparently at least on the part of some uh, for the European Space Agency David Southwood the director of science for the ESA has been heard on this program talking about Europe's role in space exploration or what he would like to see where would you like Europe to be a- as um, a s- spacefaring agency
2: yeah as a spacefaring agency we have uh, demonstrated that uh, okay progressively we have built an expertise, some technology where we have access to space. We can also build robotic missions which are uh, smart and uh, cost effective and hopefully uh, deliver the science. But uh, we want also to build on this uh, expertise to go to the next step, which will be uh, exploration. So no, not only uh, for knowledge and uh, for science, but also supporting global uh, goals of the society. Uh, g- goals uh, which we have at the European level uh, of uh, fostering uh, technology, innovation, uh, but also at a global level. Uh, goals of uh, international collaboration towards a peaceful uh, project, uh, towards uh, some uh, accomplishment, which uh, really have benefits uh, on Earth and where we can, for instance, uh, put together elements from the different uh, regional uh, space powers. For instance, a a step would be to put a series of landers on the moon, and some agencies could uh, take care of uh, different different, uh, landers and put that in an international robotic village. We would have just to discuss together the standards of communication, how to exploit resources, energy together, and uh, build up uh, this project together before the following step, which could be uh, in placing uh, a human lunar base, uh, international, and uh, eventually with uh, this time a permanent presence on the moon.
0: Ambitious plans indeed, and we will wish you uh, luck there at the ESA. We are out of time for our conversation today. I just want to congratulate you one more time on this very impressive arrival of SMART-1 in lunar orbit. And while we're at it, uh, since you were involved uh, overall with the ESA's uh, work in science, uh, science research in space, congratulations as well on uh, Mars Express, which is uh, continuing to return beautiful photos and other data from uh, Mars.
2: Yeah, these are our first steps into planetary uh, science and exploration, and uh, we have the data to explore, and we'll be uh, using that with the community, but also we would prepare for the future missions.
0: Bernard Foing, thanks again for joining us on Planetary Radio, and I, I hope we'll be able to have you back on, uh, maybe talk about further results as uh, SMART1 spirals down into that close orbit around the moon.
2: Yeah, thanks very much, and uh, all the best to
0: the planetary explorers. Thank you. And we will be back with more Planetary Radio, specifically what's up with Bruce Betts, right after this return visit from Emily.
1: I'm Emily Lakdawalla, back with Q&A. How come you can't look up and see the central bulge of the Milky Way galaxy, even though you can see the other stars around us? In the 25,000 light-years of space between us and the galactic center, there is a lot of dust, Visible light – light that has wavelengths that the human eye can detect – is absorbed by space dust, so almost none of the visible light from the stars far away at the center of the galaxy can reach our eyes. Fortunately, we can build cameras and detectors that can see in wavelengths that the human eye cannot. Infrared light, which has a longer wavelength than visible light, is not absorbed by space dust as strongly. So images taken in infrared light can reveal the bright bulge of the galactic center. Images such as these have provided evidence that the Milky Way may not be a simple spiral, like our neighbor Andromeda, but actually a less common type called a barred spiral. Astronomers are still at work to figure out which one it is. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now here's Matt with more Planetary Radio.
0: It's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio, and we're doing something we haven't done in a long time. We've got Bruce on the phone. Why? Because he's been under the weather again. You know, you're getting all kinds of uh, good wishes from from listeners out there, and I thought you were fully recovered, only to find out that uh, that you have not been well.
3: This is true. Thank you to all those listeners, and uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you're I feel- found a new exciting disease. It's, it's a fun thing.
0: But you're feeling better, uh, you told me.
3: Yes, I am feeling nearly hunky-dory swell now.
0: Well, we're glad to hear it. Are you up to doing what's up? Oh, always. <laughs> well, then go for it.
3: Up in the, uh, that, that sky of ours, if you're really, really tricky, you can see all five ni- naked eye planets right now, but you do have to be up in the evening, up in the morning, and looking just after sunset for Mercury, because it's the tough one. It is low in the glow of sunset. Look on the southwest horizon just like half an hour after sunset. Binoculars help. You may or may not be able to see it. You can see Saturn rising in the evening, around 9 or so in the east, and it is to the lower right of Castor and Pollux, the two bright stars of Gemini. It is uh, brighter than both. Don't confuse Saturn with airplanes going by. The airplanes are blinking. Saturn is not. In the pre-dawn sky... You can see the brightest object up there is still Venus looking like an extremely bright star in the east at dawn. Can't miss it. And if you look to the upper right of Venus, the other really bright-looking star is Jupiter. And to the lower, 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 just, you know, the lowered of uh, (laughs) of Venus, you can look for Mars, which is much dimmer, but is up there in that pre-dawn sky. And on uh, November 30th, look for the moon hanging out near Saturn. Hmm.
0: Okay, plenty to see.
3: On to this week in space history. On November 28th, 1964, that's 40 years ago, I think, Mariner 4 was launched, which was the first successful Mars flyby. Which, of course, leads us to RANDOM SPACE Gamma ray bursts, or GRBs, are the most distant and powerful explosions known. They're likely formed when black holes form. But uh, that's still what people are looking into, and they are just a ton of satellites starting to fly around the Earth and try to check these things out and figure them out.
0: Yeah, one of them just got launched a few days ago after uh, some delays. Uh, we mentioned that at the top of the show, as a matter of fact, and so maybe we'll find out a little bit more about these things that are uh, I have read have the power of a billion, billion suns.
3: Wow. <laughs> yeah, I hope they figure out something swiftly. <laughs>
0: little pun you had to be around for the beginning of the show
3: folks (laughs) okay on to trivia we asked you what is the only large that's large moon in the solar system that orbits retrograde one of my favorite words in uh, the planetary world meaning the opposite direction in this case meaning the opposite direction that the planet rotates How'd we
0: do, Matt? Carl Zander. Carl Zander of Eureka, California. What well, is a beautiful place up there? I've only been there once. But, uh, there is a, a college campus up there I had to go to, and boy is it pretty. Uh, anyway. I, I
3: actually have tried to find it, but have never succeeded.
0: <laughs> well, it's, you gotta drive a long ways, unless you fly, which is what I did. Uh, and, uh, he has picked something a long ways off. It, it's the correct answer. Triton. Triton, the moon of Neptune, is, uh, the biggest one, I guess, that uh, flies around the planet retrograde in the wrong direction. Did he get that right?
3: He did indeed. Triton Triton is it. And, in fact, it makes uh, people suspicious that Triton is actually a captured body.
0: What do you have for us next week?
3: I've got something fun to address one of my pet peeves in the, in the space community. Uh, it's been quite a long time since we have challenged the listeners. And as a result, we've been getting lots of great trivia answers. Thank you, everyone. Not because we didn't challenge you, but we want to challenge you to make us laugh again. Come up with something funny. And here's what it is. And, and the funniest answer is judged by our esteemed committee, which is Matt and me. Pretty much. will win a Planetary Radio T-shirt. Now, the head official of NASA, the world's largest space agency, the top person, that person's title is administrator. The NASA administrator. It just never seemed like a title befitting the the stature of the job.
0: It's not sexy.
3: Definitely not sexy. Uh, what we're asking you out there is what should what should the top official at NASA's title be? Tell us, please. Please please tell us what it should be. We will, of course, forward your comments, and I'm sure they will be given due consideration (laughs) by NASA. And and I'm sure Sean O'Keefe, the head of NASA, is looking for a new title.
0: I'm sure he's going to be extremely appreciative. Once he listens to the show, he will be.
3: You know what's really great, and a lot of people don't realize this, except in the space community, is that all the other big title people get modified off of that. So you have the associate administrators are the head of things like space science and flight and then you have assistant associate administrators i kid you not triple a's deputy associate administrators
0: cool huh yeah They need our help. How do they enter, Bruce? Go
3: to planetary.org slash radio and give us your answer. Email it to us, and uh, we will talk about it in a couple weeks.
0: And you've got until Monday, November 29, noon Pacific time. Monday, November 29. Get yours in. We will pick randomly from all the correct answers. And if you're the lucky person, you might be like Carl Xander pretty soon after receiving a Planetary Radio T-shirt. Bruce, we're out of time.
3: All right, everyone. Go out there. Look up the night sky. Think about bowling and what it has to do with planetary science. Thank you, and good night.
0: Bruce Betts, and he never strikes out on What's Up when he joins us every week here at the end of Planetary Radio. Bruce, you take care of yourself.
3: Hey, thanks. Don't worry, I've got energy and
0: diseases to spare. (laughs) And he'll be back next week, we (laughs) think. Next time, we'll take a look back at two of the most successful and controversial interplanetary explorers of all time, naked people in all, as we talk with the author of a new book about Pioneers 10 and 11. I hope you'll join us again. Have a great week, everyone.